when are you acting as a physician and when are you acting as a leader is not the same. The software of the mind that you're required to be a physician is different than the one to become a leader on a group. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Dr. Francisco Arredondo, who founded Arme of Texas in 2007. He grew that practice to be one of the state's largest and most experienced centers for fertility treatment. In 2018, his clinic joined forces with a group. He first exited at a 51% equity. He then sold the rest of the equity in his group to start the sabbatical that he's on now, writing his book, Medicalpreneur, which we're going to talk about. He has served as the CMO for the chief medical officer for groups. He has served on the medical advisory board for companies like Progeny. So he himself is an entrepreneur. He himself is a medical doctor. Now he's writing a book called Medicalpreneur, and we're going to talk about the contents and that mission today. Dr. Arredondo, Paco, welcome yeah. to Inside Reproductive Health. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm ready to uh, chat with you. So I am uh, happy to, to go into this with you because one of the things that you're passionate about is correcting the stereotype, I suppose, that doctors are not good entrepreneurs or are not good business people. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it's a myth, but I'm also not sure that it's always fair. And so what is it that you're out to clarify? Well, I think that there is this common uh, talk that uh, uh, physician entrepreneurs is like an oxymoron. And, uh, and obviously it's not. And it is not for several reasons. And in fact, I believe that the future physicians have the perfect hardware of the mind to become the best entrepreneurs and business people in the future for several reasons. So the, as you can see, the, the, the business is moving towards a way that is not only all about the money, it's actually solving a problem. And basically the money is the bypass product of the end. So the mentality of trying to help solve problems, help find solutions, it is already embedded on the spirit in the daily training of physicians. Uh, they just need a little bit of financial and business discipline that is usually not taught in medical school. But if you think about it, of the skills that you're required to be an entrepreneur, a business person, they are very, very aligned and overlap a lot with physicians. Entrepreneurs and doctors both require impeccable judgment and learning from their mistakes. Both require a little bit of research and do trial and error and, and experimentation. Both deal with uncertainties. Both make decisions with imperfect information. 
physicians and entrepreneurs need to know how to read patterns, how to anticipate events, uh, how to question to obtain the right answers. And because the skill that physicians have always trying to do good, always trying to find solutions, and the money will come after that, in the 21st century, the hardware of the uh, uh, physician is perfect to flourish in business. And we just need to change a little bit the software of the mind. But I have no doubt that physicians will, uh, and, and not every physicians need to be an entrepreneur. And you only require a couple of them to really have an impact and uh, have a change in, uh, in that perception. You, don't, you just need a fewer uh, innovators to disrupt the whole system. So you mentioned some of the commonalities that entrepreneurs and physicians have making decisions quickly, incomplete information, doing mm -hmm. so after trial and error, but those can be quite different, can't they? I mean, there's some differences here, one of which is that the trial and error that physicians are working with have to do with labs and randomized control trials and approved procedures, and the trial and error that entrepreneurs are facing is the market, which changes mm -hmm every day and uh, by the time you do a, a randomized control trial with market study in mm -hmm. uh, for, for, for a product, it could be uh, irrelevant or replaced in the 18 months that it takes to launch it, which is very different from medicine. So where do you see the tension there? Well, what I, what I see there is despite the fact that we think that physicians make decisions based on evidence-based and uh, scientific facts. There's a very nice article from um, uh, Scientific uh, um, uh, American, uh, I think it was like 2011 or something, that uh, says that actually the medical decisions with scientific evidence is only 30%. The great majority of the medical decisions are with no information at all. And uh, um, I think that doing a small, if I understand your question correctly, doing a small trial and errors in the business, while it may take a little bit of uh, time, uh, you still will get uh, uh, to the bottom of, uh, of the answer that you want. Can you clarify a little bit more of what the, the question that you want to ask? Well, so what I mean is that even in a case like that, where you, it's, you're making decisions and maybe 30% of the time is based on the science that one might have before oneself. There's still 15 years of higher ed required to be an REI, for example. Correct. Four years undergrad, four years med school, four years residency, three-year fellowship. Whereas I myself, I have a, a bachelor's degree from a state liberal arts school that I would blow my nose with. It has served me 0% in my opinion in starting my business. My business has been informed by what clients are willing to spend money on, what benefits them, what their clients are willing to spend money on, how my people are motivated, how we're able to build systems. And uh, I that has just been changing so quickly and it's almost all been trial and error. And there are MBA tracks for people. And I think that there is a utility for people that uh, have, uh, that are going to be COOs and have that operational tra 
operational track or work for a place like Bain and McKinsey and do some sort of Harvard MBA level consulting. But some of the best business people in the world hardly have a high school diploma, whereas you know, every single physician has the licensure to practice medicine. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know if, if what you're saying is that by having too much study will impair you to become a good uh, 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 business people. I, I, I don't agree with that, but uh, what I would say is that everything that you mentioned there um, is basically the same process that physicians use for diagnosis. What does my customer want? Where do they want to go? And that's what we do. We try to diagnose a problem and then treat for it. And how do you diagnose the problem? By asking the proper questions. And so in a sense, we have all that embedded in our daily uh, 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 thinking. We just need to adapt it into the, uh, the business. Uh, that is basically what uh, uh, I believe why physicians are very well poised to become great entrepreneurs and business people. And let's make there a distinction. The same skill set that you require to be an entrepreneur is different than when you're required to be a business person. Because entrepreneurs start a, a business with an idea and develop it and idealize it and work to it. But that doesn't necessarily, you develop a product or a service that is innovation, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to handle the company. So management, in fact, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that are horrible uh, managers and horrible business people and vice versa. So I think that it's important to make the distinctions between an entrepreneur and a business uh, manager or business person to make success a company successful so that's an important distinction i think that is a, a good distinction I'll, I'll give an example that might show where i see the tendency to be a successful physician betraying the tendency to be a successful entrepreneur and when so when we started working with clients and doing video for them video is expensive right you can spend yeah tens and tens of thousands of dollars on video if you want. And so I just wanted to test the concept with many mm -hmm. of our clients at the time and just say, let's just do social media video. Let's just record mm -hmm. something on the phone, edit it cheaply, just, yeah. just to put it out there to our community and to see how they react, get feedback from that, and then we can invest in production later. And Correct. so many of our early clients were like, we're saying things like Griffin, we can't, I can't just take something that isn't going to look the highest quality of production and put that on the internet. And that tendency to, uh, to, I, I guess for, for quality control, which is necessary, uh, in treating a patient, it can also betray things like, you know, having to micromanage every single social media post that people are going to spend 1.7 seconds looking at if you're lucky. And yeah. uh, so I talk, talk in, about that. In, in your particular example, I think the, the important thing is to educate uh, the physician and to say, in our case, in fertility, who is our current market, 25 to 45 years of age? 
the great majority of those are basically generation Y and some generation X. The advantage of what you propose to me about doing it with the phone is that you humanize the person. It's a natural conversation. It's authenticity, which is what the current consumer, the current uh, patient wants to see in doctors and in professionals overall. They want to see authenticity. They want to see spontaneous conversations. And nothing can be achieved better than just a phone. So that's my so, argument of what the market wants. The market wants authenticity. Yeah. The physician wants perfection. I, we have to educate it because you have to define what are the set of values to say what is perfection. Perfection for whom? For you or for the customer? I have found physicians that are very open to this and especially the new younger physicians. And yes, if we go to physicians that are uh, more into baby boomer generation, all that are going to be more difficult to, to persuade, to tell them that this, but you know, these are generalizations. I have found baby boomers that are much more flexible and open-minded than a lot of millennials. So obviously we're generalizing here, but, it, it, but uh, as a rule, I think that the new consumer is looking to uh, see authenticity, see spontaneity. And I think that part of the duty of a seller of any service is to educate the consumer. I, I'm going to share with you this, uh, this uh, anecdote that I actually put in the book, uh, in the Medicalpreneur book, which is the, uh, the guy that enters into uh, Home Depot and says, hey, uh, do you have quarter-inch drills? And the guy that works in Home Depot looks at the customer and says, you don't need a quarter-inch drill. You're looking for a quarter-inch hole. He says, oh, and what do you need the hole for? Oh, I'm going to put some wood, and then I'm going to put some uh, uh, screws, and I'm going to hang my frames in my room. Oh, you're looking to hang on frames. Well, here are all the options. I have Velcro. I have these little devices that you don't have to put a hole. I have this one that you put in the street rock and you just make a one little thing. I have the quarter inch drill and you can do that. And so actually, you know, the, 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 the consumer in this particular case, your doctors that came here, they might have an idea that they want to expand their sales and all this. And they think they want to do it the more professional, but Hey, there are all these options. There's the Velcro. There is this, there is that. So, it is an important part for whoever is providing the service to also give options and to understand what is the ultimate need. The need was not the quarter inch drill, obviously, it was hanging in the frames. And I think we see this uh, on a daily basis with our patients that, uh, and I've seen this in, in, in fertility. Let's just talk about a little bit specific about fertility. It comes to me a 37 year young lady and says, I want to get pregnant. I have not been able to get pregnant in one year. And, you know, you and I know uh, that maybe I can, you know, if everything is normal, I can give her a little bit of Clomid and do an insemination. And if we're lucky, 10, 15% of the times she will get pregnant and she will conceive. And guess what? You're a hero right now. But when she comes back at 39 or 40 and she wants her second baby, you're not going to be a hero because probably by then it's going to be much more difficult and you're not going to achieve that in one or two inseminations. So the proper question at that time, the 
you don't need a, dr a drill statement. It's like, how many children do you envision in your family? And if she at 37 tells me, oh, my ideal family is going to be three, I'm going to say, listen, my friend, you need to do an IVF, free some embryos. We'll do one transfer right now. And actually, if you get pregnant, perfect. And then we have the other ones and you can come back when you're 40 and we still have three or four normal embryos stored for you to maximize the chances of having those three, three kids. So once more, you know, it's, it's the questioning, is the questioning to try to obtain what is the ultimate need of your consumer? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. We have to deal with this challenge very often because often when people approach me, they have their marketing director or the practice manager mm -hmm. approach me and they're just asking me questions like, how much does a website cost or what do you do for social media? It's like, those are all things that we have done to help people. But the problems that we help with are things like getting a physician busy or helping to position for exit or helping to make a satellite office at capacity or improve IVF conversion rate or increase new patient volumes, et cetera. So I always try to find out what is the whole first. And until we agree yeah. on what is the whole, then we, we don't move forward. If they're just saying, hey, what kind of drill do you have? Then I say, if you can't find a time and materials agency that's cheap and quick, you don't know how to use Google. This is what Correct. we help with. I'm going to help you figure out what to do for the whole because this is all we do. But it's a, it's a very good point. You tend to gravitate to this level of thinking. And I remember the first time I met you, you were talking about going to New York City to do improv classes. So you have this, yeah. you have this bend towards entrepreneurship, towards creative thinking, I don't see it from so many physicians, not that I don't see it from, from anybody. I do really see creative entrepreneurship from physicians in our field, but I don't see it from so many. Why do you suppose you tend to gravitate, gravitate toward it more than other doctors who haven't embraced this entrepreneurial calling that you see? I, I, I think that I have always been a very curious person. That's one thing. And I have always uh, not tried to uh, do uh, what everybody does. I'm always a little bit uh, uh, thinking on the outlines uh, for good or for bad. And sometimes it's for bad. And as an entrepreneur, you make mistakes. Um, I would say that perhaps what gave me this orientation was that I had uh, a, a group of my parents were encouraged me always to read outside medicine. Uh, my father was a big believer that what you gain in debt, you lose in width. And he said, it's much better to know a little bit about everything than to know a lot about something. And this is paradoxical because our universities are teaching you the contrary. You have to be the super, 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 super specialist on this, 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 this. But there's actually a very nice book uh, uh, that just came out, uh, I think a couple of years ago, it is called Range, and how generalists will dominate the future of a super specialized world. Because the more you know about all the things, the more you can solve problems. That education of the past that he gave you basics of ethics, basics of literature, basics of physics, basics of mathematics, that bachelor that gave you solid basis for everything, then you can construct the house however you want it. 
So I think that uh, to give you the, the answer, I think that it has always been my desire of reading uh, things that have nothing to do with medicine. In the talks, as you remember, I always talk about hybridization. You know, this is also that we physicians sometimes, this is the bad, bad part about the physicians, that sometimes we're hard-headed, some of us, and we are set in the way of thinking and we think that we cannot learn from other industries. And we can certainly, I mean, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of the things that we did in our practice to be creative, basically I stole them from other industries. It was not you know, some of, of the things we created as a team, uh, but a lot of the things that we did, we uh, uh, pilfered them from other uh, uh, industries. Uh, you know, Picasso used to say that the good, uh, artists copy but great artists steal so you can steal a lot of ideas and apply them to your industry do you want your ivf lab to be at capacity do you want one or more of your docs to be busier do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it but private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you and patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before for good or for bad and you need a plan a fertility marketing system is not just buying some google ads here or doing a a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now back to inside reproductive health. Let's explore this idea a little bit more because if we were just taking this at face value, I think this is something that you and I would really disagree on. My tendency mm -hmm. is to say that I think for most people, the universities are crap because they're far too generalist, particularly, um, particularly with regard to mm -hmm. undergraduate and the success that we've had have been from being specialists. The reason why I'm able to negotiate the way I am, the reason why I'm able to have the results for our clients is because I'm not really worth much to a dermatologist. I'm not worth much to a restaurant owner as, as a marketer or many other different types of businesses. We've, we've all gone in uh, into this depth. The point you're making though uh, about the value that a generalist can bring in a specialized society I think uh, someone named Cal Newport has, has 
identified where we're both right. Are you familiar with Cal Newport at all? No, actually I'm not. No. He wrote a book called Deep Work. And so especially for the millennials listening, I recommend listening to uh, Deep Work. Cal, New- Cal Newport's book is Deep Work. But one of the things that he talks about, Paco, is being so specialized in one vertical and then also being really well-rounded. So really deep in something and then having the the Renaissance experience to add to it. I I think critical. Obviously, I cannot uh, agree with you more. I think that we do not disagree. We agree. You obviously need something to uh, uh, focus your work, but you require that wide knowledge in order to solve the new problems uh, of other things and thinking totally outside of what you are. You know, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, Nobel Prizes, the great majority of them, uh, you are much more likely to be a Nobel Prize if you uh, play an instrument, if you actually uh, are very prone into acting and into uh, uh, a lot of the performance arts. All the, people don't know that having this wide variety of knowledge is, sup, uh, is super important. Other people call, uh, call it alternating rhythms, which is basically to never lose perspective of the big picture, but be able to focus on the, the details. So is that balance that requires to be a very specialized, but also having a lot of knowledge. But what I'm saying is, in, unfortunately, in a lot of our medical fields, uh, the, the, the stuff is, oh, you have to know about medicine, and then medicine, you have to know about OBGYN, don't, who cares about the kidneys? Oh, you have to know about reproduction, and who cares about now of deliveries? It's only this. No, I mean, our body is totally interconnected, interconnected with the society. So you really, yes, you need to know about this of reproduction, but you need to see the big picture. And I think that sometimes, not always, some of us physicians lack that universal view and focus on the, we get lost into the uh, leaves uh, and the trees and forget the forest. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I could see being especially a subspecialist physician, one's tendency to err on that side of being too deep in the vertical and not wide enough to be well-rounded. And I'm seeing a lot of people come out of college or even people my age now in their Mm -hmm. mid-30s. And I just think, you don't have any specific skills. Sure, you've been to, you've, you've traveled the world and you've worked for a few different companies, but you don't have any. You don't have deep enough skills to charge a price premium for whatever it is that that you want to do. And so I I tend to see the the challenge on the other side. But it's it's a good point that one can err on either side, and uh, and it is good re- to be deep in one and and wide in general. And remember what we were talking about is how to be good entrepreneurs. So for solving specifically the problem of this particular patient, yes, you're required to be much more into the depth the great majority of times. But to solve problems of a group or to develop a business, you require a little bit of a broader uh, knowledge. This is the same 
the same uh, uh, example about the difference in medicine between clinical medicine and public health. Sometimes the measures that you do for the individual patient are totally opposed to public health. You put millions and millions and millions of dollars into heart transplant, but those millions of dollars, you can put them on a preventive task and you save much more life. But if you're the person that has the, needs the heart transplant, you want the heart transplant. But if you look at the group or the whole population, it's better to invest it in preventive things instead of one heart transplant. Does that make sense? It makes sense. So you're, you're talking about the mentality that physicians need to become good leaders and entrepreneurs. What are the, some of the specific steps that physicians should take if they want to become visionaries for their organization? Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, we cover one of them, which is to try to read about things that are totally unrelated to medicine. That would be uh, one of the, uh, the, the, the first steps. The second one is to understand when are you acting as a physician and when are you acting as a leader is not the same. The software of the mind that you're required to be a physician is different than the one to become a leader on a group. For example, physicians, when they ask questions and they say, hey, did you take your medication? Uh, and they're always accepting, a skeptical physician. Hey, I think they didn't take the medication. Let me see the bottle of it to see if she's lying. Uh, you know, you're always suspicious of your information, right? Mm -hmm. If you transmit that skepticism and if you don't trust in your team, is not going to happen. So you have to know that the skills to become a physician, while they overlap to be an entrepreneur, as I mentioned, to be a manager, it's a total different ballgame. So in a sense, you require skills to be a physician, to be an entrepreneur, and to be a business manager, which are different. Those on the business manager, uh, I would say that is trust, that it is um, building up with time. I remember once uh, reading about Socrates that uh, they asked him, what are the uh, types of respect? And pe people in position of leadership require the respect of the people to say, hey, we're going to go this way. And I say, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Let's go this way. Um, and there's two ways only to obtain respect. One is through fear and another one is through love. <laughs> You respect the people that you're afraid of. And if you're very afraid of, you are very respectful. You're not going to do anything that he or she doesn't say. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't say. Um, but guess what? The moment that person turns around, the respect goes away. If the respect is out of love, it will always be there. Because they are afraid of failing you. They are afraid of not really rising to the level that you are expecting them to do. So you have to build up that skill. And physicians sometimes who are very critical, hey, well, you didn't take the medication. Hey, you know, you're not supposed to stand up here. You're not supposed to uh, get out of the house. Hey, you're not supposed to uh, be eating that on that diet. So if you all have that critical mind that a lot of the physicians do have, that we are sort of like disease oriented instead of health oriented, uh, you need to know that to be a visionary, you need to go from the critical to the 
hopeful. Uh, you have to, hey, we can, we are in trouble right now, but we can get there. How are we going to get there? We're going to get there in this way. So I think that that is uh, some of the uh, skills that you will require to be a visionary. And this need to build a team to be a, a leader and a, a visionary, that can be something that I sometimes see as a, as a point of tension where I think the entrepreneur is, a, is the leader. And sometimes I see physicians that I perceive just wanting to be employees of their own practice. And one of the biggest tendencies I see in the difference between these two groups is how they manage their teams. And the, the second group, the folks that just want to be employees of their own practice, they will leave people that have no business being in the organization in their seats for years and years and years even if they're no good for the health of the organization because they don't want to get back into doing that role, meaning the business owner, the physician doesn't want to get back into yeah. to doing that role. Where in my company, I, if somebody can't play nice with the other girls and boys, I don't care how good they are and I don't care if it dra drags me back into the day-to-day -day for a little bit, they're gone because I need that culture. And that's something that uh, I, I don't see many physicians doing unless they're really cognizant of that leadership piece? No, yeah, I think that uh, not everybody in any profession can be an entrepreneur and not every entrepreneur can be a business person. Uh, so you have to be very honest with yourself where do you feel comfortable and where do you want to be? Maybe you're not comfortable, but you want to develop it because you want to be there. So that's okay. So in order to answer, I think that you, you nail it on the point of the team. No company is anything without a team. And for that, I'm going to share with you Paco's five H's. I don't know if I have always shared those with you or not. But when we hire people, <clears throat> we began by saying exactly what you said, which is, I don't want the best embryologists. I don't want the best doctors. I don't want the best nurses. I want the right ones, not the best ones. And sometimes the best one is the right one, but not always. If you have a, created a philosophy on a company that is towards low cost or a great customer experience, and those people don't have the mind for that, even if they're the best on what they do, ain't going to work. So that's the first thing. So for that, I have the five ages of Paco. One, you want people to be hungry, a go-getter, a person that does not stop at anything. That when you tell them you can't, he or she is going to say, oh, yeah, watch me. That kind of attitude, the hunger. Two, that they are humble. Humble means that they can listen, they can accept their wrong, they're willing to learn, they know that the team is more important than themselves, that humbleness is required. The third one is human skills. That you're able to listen, to empathize, to smile, to say good morning, to identify with your coworker. Hey, I see that today you're sad. Is there anything I can help you with? I don't want to know, but I, I just want to help you out with it. So those kind of human skills of uh, listening, smiling, empathizing, collaborating, all those things are essential. The 
fourth one would be honesty. That goes without saying. And you have to be honest that nobody is going to uh, uh, try to get an advantage of you and got, get advantage of the team and decrease the morale of everybody. And the last one and not least of the H's is happy. You want positive people. You want people that can take a joke and say a joke and diffuse uh, tension with uh, jokes and, uh, and be happy and be positive. And, you know, we are all humans. And if you have a bad day, hey, take your day off. It's fine. You know? But in general, you want happy people. So those are the five H's that uh, we really require in our companies to be successful. Happy is the one that I might see, uh, I, I might see physicians betray a lot, or, or I guess often enough, maybe a lot isn't fair, but I see yeah. it, it betrayed often and not. And then there's almost, when that happens, there's almost always a couple people, either in nursing management or office management that are not happy and creativity is just stifled throughout the, the rest of the organization. And they want to make some changes and it, it happens at a glacial pace and it happens with resistance because they don't they don't have those people you know in place i i think you're totally right i'll tell you a quick anecdote when we started the the first practice uh, 13 14 years ago and time was our biggest valuable asset i think it comes all from leadership uh what happened at that time is i went through all the list of the 250 OBGYNs that were in san antonio which is where we opened the first practice and i personally visit every single one of the OBGYNs knocking at the door of their practice and at that time i didn't introduce myself i just had my my, my suit and this and i had my tag and, and people thought i was a drug rep or something and i would just sit call me and then finally met the doctor, offered the services, and established a conversation. But one of the things that I observe is that when the front desk was very nice, the doctor was super nice. <laughs> when the front desk was not a nice person, I felt it correlated with an R of 0.9 or something like that with the doctor. So it's all from leadership. The people below you will be the reflection of the leadership. That's basically what it is. But, but I remember the same thing from when I first started in the field, when I was cold calling people because yeah. I didn't know anyone yet. The people that would treat me nice were the ones that had really good cultures. It, it's, yeah. it, there's, a, there's a saying that says those that uh, you can tell how a society is by how they treat the lowliest of their society, yep. like prisoners. Well, you can tell how an organization is by the, how they treat the lowliest of the people they interface with, which would be salespeople back then. And, uh, and, and I think that's a, a really good point. So these are, these are skills that the people have to have. Uh, that looking for them can make someone a good leader. So what would you advise to someone that is finishing up their training. And I'm thinking of someone that is maybe either just out of fellowship or was an associate someplace, but they're up to their eyeballs in debt still. They probably got a quarter million dollars in debt, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe half a mil. And yeah. um, what do you recommend for people that, it, it, because it's hard to be, uh, there's there's a scale of entrepreneurs, right? Some some really are okay with 
debt and some aren't. I'm a person that I'm really not okay with debt. It makes me very uncomfortable. I've had zero. Um, but you yeah. have people that by virtue of their training are coming out with big heaps of debt. How, how do you advise them? Well, I think, uh, uh, and you're asking a person that uh, might be totally progressive, crazy and liberal in a lot of the uh, handling of the uh, company, but in the finances, I'm extremely conservative. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, uh, share with you that the great majority of all the new companies that we developed, we developed with no debt, basically with our own earnings. Uh, we did uh, some of that, and as I felt more comfortable in, 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 in getting there than, than we used it. But which is not necessarily good or bad, it's just what it is. The American culture of entrepreneurship is always with that. So you have to get used to that. But going specifically to your question, this is an individual, and as you well said, the average physician finishes uh, or starts practicing about in an REI, 32, 33 years of age, and they accumulated 250, 300 grand, which is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And I would say that the best way is to try to pay it off right away. And when you start practicing, if you practice right away in a group or for a company or something, I would say my recommendation will be to, when your dollar comes in, 25 cents of those, do not belong to you. 25 cents of the, that dollar that comes to you do not belong to you and goes to pay everything. Uh, because um, if you want to be in a position where you want to become an entrepreneur and you want to embark on a risk-taking position, you require not to add up to your already own debt that you have. So if you can uh, tighten the belt for a couple of years and try to minimize the debt that you have, which will require, and, and this is a, a difficult position to be, uh, and I'll bring, back the, I'll bring back the marshmallow test, which you probably are, are familiar with, but it is the first three years, four years to try, you're tempted because you've been for so many years deprive of you know going out with your friends and you know you've been focusing on, on your career and now you may have a baby and you want to relax and take a vacation and go and experience life basically but it, it, i don't know are you familiar with the marshmallow test from stanford in the 60s actually it's, it's so it's so simple they put three and four year uh girl kids and they sat with cameras and they were in a room by themselves okay. Yep. And they put the marshmallow. The gratification test. That's correct. Yes. So if you come, if we come back and you have not touched the marshmallow, uh, we'll give you two. Well, those kiddos did. They followed them for like 20 years and they did much better when they were, they were able to hold on the gratification. So I would say that to those physicians, you know, it's going to be two, three years where you really hold your, gratif your gratification of being a physician. But in the long run is going to pay off because now you're going to be able to do what you want. And let's face it, we're very lucky. Uh, our, our field is, it's very good. Um, there is a lot of money in our field. They pay very well. And it, it is a specialty that no matter what happens in the market, there will always be jobs for us uh, and good paid jobs because 
fertility is, uh, you can postpone having your new home or your new car. But if you're 35, 36, and you can have a baby, you cannot postpone that. You have to do it now. So uh, we're lucky. Dr. Francisco Raridondo, Paco, thank you so much yeah. for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.